I'm reading from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 13 through 20. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they don't have faith in? And how can they have faith in someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news. But everyone hasn't obeyed the good news. As Isaiah says, Lord, who has had faith in our message? So faith comes from listening, but it's listening by means of Christ's message. But I ask you, didn't they hear it? Definitely. Their voice has gone out into the entire earth, and their message has gone out to the corners of the inhabited world. But I ask you again, didn't Israel understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who aren't a people, of a people without understanding. And Isaiah even dares to say, I was found by those who didn't look for me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as I said, I am Reverend Jen Logston Kellogg, and I am newly appointed as an associate minister here at Boston Avenue. My job title includes the words evangelism and welcoming. Now, I don't have a lot of people worry about the term welcoming. Welcoming is fairly well understood, but I do have lots of questions about the word evangelism. And so the idea of what evangelism is and how one is to become a minister of evangelism is obviously something that I have been wrestling with lately because evangelism for many evokes tactics of fear and manipulation and that is not how I see evangelism at all. Evangelism, the word evangelism simply means to be one who announces the good news, who brings the good news. In the Greek word, the eu, eu is a prefix in Greek that means good. And so eulogy is a good word about someone. Euthanasia means good death. So evangelism, or evangel, is simply good message. The euangelion is the good message, and one who brings it is the good messenger. What is the good news? In this letter to the Romans, Paul divides the book, in the way I see it, into two major sections with a hinge in the middle. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul is describing exactly what this good news is. And he begins Romans 1 by saying, I am an apostle. I am one who is sent out to tell the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on for eight chapters describing what it is that is the good news of Christ. And it is this, that God created humanity in God's own image. And that God desires relationship with each and every one of us. And that we have a hard time with that because all kinds of things, all kinds of reasons we have a hard time with that. And so God 
sent Jesus as the incarnate God in the flesh in order to reconcile that relationship. And it is through Jesus' life and death and resurrection that that relationship is healed and made whole and that we are invited to step into that and be a part of it. In the second half of Romans, from 12 to 16, Paul is describing the community, the Christian community, and what it takes to live in community when you are living in acceptance of this good news and living in such a way that you are putting your trust in Christ. These two chapters here in the middle, chapters 9 and through 11, are kind of a hinge between the two sections. Now, when I got here, this uh, sermon series that we just finished, the questions from Romans, had already been settled on. It was already decided that, that we would have this series on the first part of Romans, the questions from Romans. And that the second series that we're getting ready to start next week, when Reverend David Wiggs is back, will be Cultivating the Good Life, which will be from the second part of Romans. And how we do that and how we live in Christian community in such a way that it produces growth and healthiness. And it just so happened that this section, chapters 9 through 11, contains the part of the scripture that caused me to be standing in front of you today. I didn't choose it, but when I saw that it was a natural fit, I had to tell you the story. If you are looking at your overview, you see that the second half of Romans is about how the gospel is lived out in community, but it's very important that you know that that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit got a hold of me in a pretty significant way. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I was uh, baptized at the age of two at First United Methodist Church of Ada, my family church. I was raised there. I was confirmed at the age of 12. I went through confirmation and felt confident that, you know, I did accept my faith for my own. And I continued on as a relatively good church member into my early adulthood. I attended worship services, I joined Sunday school classes, I served on committees. In fact, I, while I am new to an, being an appointed minister at Boston Avenue United Methodist Church, I am not new to Boston Avenue. If you were around in the late 90s and you happened to be in the Horizon Sunday school class, and if you happen to sit in the balcony and, and still do, then you may have run across me then. My husband, Gene, and I joined Boston Avenue late 96, early 97, something like that. And we stayed until early 2000 when we moved back to our hometown in Ada. We were living at that time in the post-college, pre-kid, early married days. And you know what that means? Freedom. We moved to Tulsa for my job, which was a job that I loved. And when we first moved here, we lived just a block off of Cherry Street. 
And we got to walk down to a different restaurant every night. We had season tickets to the theater. We were living the life that we thought adulthood was supposed to be about. We had arrived. And it was fun. And we loved it. I would say at that time that my faith was just one more part of my life. It's just something I did. It wasn't necessarily that I had ever had any kind of conversion experience or any major transformation that I could put a finger on, just that I couldn't tell you when I became a Christian or came to believe in Jesus any more than I could tell you when I realized that my grandparents loved me. It was just who I was. Well, we went through some things. Life happened. And after life began to throw some things at us that weren't quite so easy, I ended up about 38 years old and thinking, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? And I began to think and pray about that. And as I did, I ran across an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the essay was entitled Wealth. Now, the point of the essay wasn't about how to get wealthy. It wasn't about financial wealth at all. It was about finding that one thing that God created you to do and doing that one thing with excellence. And when you find that one thing that you were created to do and you do it with excellence, then everything else is going to fall into place. And so I began to pray, God, what is my one thing? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? My children were in elementary school. My husband and I were running a business together. I was working from home by myself, which, as it turns out, I am an extreme extrovert, and that was not a good fit for me. And so as I began praying about this, I had a prayer group that I was meeting with, and I asked them to be praying for me. I went and talked to my pastor, and I asked him to be praying for me. And eventually I decided that what I needed to do was to go spend some time alone with God in the woods. And so when I say that I had this transformative experience that happened alone in the woods, I want you to know that it did not happen apart from the body of Christ. So I prepared by talking to my pastor and my husband about what I was going to do, and I went and spent three days at Cross Point Camp, which is our United Methodist camp on Lake Texoma. It was a place that I already felt was sacred ground for me. It's the district camp that I went to when I was a kid. I was already involved with the Walk to Emmaus, which uh, met there, the Cross Point Walk to Emmaus community. And I took a Bible and a journal, and a camp chair. And I went and sat in the woods for three days. If you've been to Cross Point Camp, you may know that there's the main part of the camp with the cabins and the tabernacle and the dining hall. And then you can go down this windy driveway road to the lake, and there is an amphitheater with a big cross in the middle of it on a point or a bluff overlooking Lake Texoma. So I took, on my first day, I took my Bible and my journal and my camp chair and I set it up out on that path so that I could no longer see the campground behind me 
and I could not yet see the cross, but I knew it was down there. And I took out my Bible, and I started just flipping through and and waiting and asking uh, for something to speak to me. Now, something you need to know about this, too, is that I was 38, and I had gone into the woods to pray and ask God what I was supposed to be doing, and I went about the business of giving God directions. God, I will do whatever it is you want me to do, as long as I'm doing it by the time I'm 40. And I don't want it to cost me too much. So as I'm sitting there in this camp chair, my eyes fall on Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear unless someone preaches it to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. For some reason, I just could not move past that scripture, so I decided it was time to meditate on it, and I memorized it, and I put my Bible down, and and I left the chair, and I started just wandering, a meandering meditation among the trees. It was October. It was beautiful. And I just repeated that verse over and over in my mind, and then I would pause, and I would listen. And I heard... This does not happen to me. It had never happened to me before, and it sounds crazy. But I heard the audible voice of God. It was a voice that came from the back of my head, and it spoke in a way that I do not speak to myself. And it said, you are meant for ministry. You are meant for ministry. Now, remember my conditions. I wanted to be doing it by the time I was 40, and I didn't want it to cost too much. I was 38 years old, and I had been a Methodist all my life. I knew what it would cost me to become a Methodist minister. And so I immediately began arguing with that voice about all the reasons that it would not work, about all the reasons it would be too hard on my family, about how I didn't have the time or money to pursue a Master of Divinity degree, that I could not possibly become itinerant, which is the expectations of elders in the United Methodist Church. And I continued to argue, but I continued to hear, you are meant for ministry. You are meant for ministry. So I meandered all the way down to the cross, and for some reason that I still cannot explain, I lay down on my back, looking up at the cross. It's a metal cross. It's probably, I don't know, 10 feet in the air. It's bigger than I am. It was a windy, windy day, and it was kind of, moving around in the breeze, and I thought, well, this will be great. They'll find me flattened by the cross. (laughs) And as I was lying there, two things happened. I had a visual image in my mind of a staircase, a really vast staircase that went so far up that I couldn't see the top. But I could clearly see the first three or four steps. And I just had the impression that I was just supposed to take those first few steps, and I didn't have to see the top in order to be faithful. And as I was 
had that picture in my mind, I looked out beyond the bluff toward the water, and a bald eagle came up from behind the bluff, came up over the cross, flew in a circle around my head, and rolled its eyes at me. I went home, I spent the rest of the time while I was there, that happened like the middle of the second day, so I spent the rest of the time on my retreat processing all of this, and by the time I got home and talked to my husband, Gene, I told him what had happened and that I felt like I had to follow through. I had, you know, given God this ultimatum and God had told me what to do. And my husband, who had a lot to lose because of this, said, I know, I've known it for a while, I was waiting for you to figure it out. Then I went and talked to my pastor, who of course was waiting to hear what had happened and what I had heard and learned about myself and my future. And I hadn't even gotten the whole story out before he had picked up the phone and was calling our district superintendent to say, I've got someone here who is called to ministry. What does she need to do next? Now, if you are Methodist, you know that we are very methodical. And when we have someone declare that they are called to ministry, we take them through a whole lot of steps in order to get there. That was in 2010. In 2012, I was enrolled to begin seminary at Perkins School of Theology in August. In March, I got a call from my district superintendent asking me if I would be willing to be part-time a appointed pastor of a little church between the place we were living and Dallas. And I said yes. So in May of 2012, I began preaching at that church, Calera United Methodist Church. I love you all if you're watching. In June, June 19th of 2012, which was my 40th birthday, I was at Oklahoma City University in licensing school in order to be licensed to preach and to pastor that little church. God has a sense of humor. In this section, chapters 9 and through 11 in the book of Romans, Paul is concerned now with making sure that all people will know that they are invited into this relationship with God through Christ. Now, if you remember we, what we know about Paul, we know that Paul was not always a Christian. When we first learn about Paul, it's in the book of Acts, when he has um, set out on a mission to persecute the Christians. He has uh, been standing in approval at the murder of the apostle Stephen. And then... He is on his way to Damascus to round up these Christians who are blaspheming God, in his, in his opinion. And while he's on the way to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ that just completely flattens him and changes the course of his life. Here in Romans, he is concerned with those who are still a part of the Jewish community, his siblings, the children of the promise, the covenant that was made between God and Abraham, and he wants to make sure that they know that they are not to be left out, that they are included. 
that everyone, Jew and Gentile, is included in the invitation to be a part of this new way of being in relationship with God. Who is included in the invitation? Everyone. How will they know? They will know when someone tells them about their own transformative experience with Jesus. Now, some of us are called to be preachers. I believe that I was called to this ministry that includes preaching. But all of us are called to be evangelists. Because there are some people who need to hear a story about how someone else's life was transformed. And it's not my story they need to hear. It's yours. It's your story that is going to be compelling to someone to invite them to come and to see what what it is like to be a part of this Christian community. And then hospitality is setting the table, setting a place that is gives people the opportunity to encounter God for themselves. Evangelism is telling our own stories of transformation in such a way that they are honest, that we tell it to the people that we already are in relationship, that we know, and then we invite them to come and to see. And when we are, for me anyway, when my message is compelling, it's when I am living in a way that my feet are beautiful. My feet are beautiful when I am in good relationship with God, when I am spiritually healthy, when I'm in good relationship with other people, when I'm relationally healthy, when I'm good emotionally and physically healthy, is when my story of my encounter with Jesus is meaningful. When you tell your story of transformation to someone else and invite them in, if you're in a good place, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and physically, then your message is more likely to be well-received. So when they come, when these people that we are evangelizing to come to be with us, that is hospitality. Hospitality is a, a tradition that comes from the earliest believers and even those who are not believers, that when someone comes to your home, you anticipate their needs. You try to predict what it is that will make them comfortable. You ask them, what do you need right now? How can I provide it for you? So hospitality in a church is doing just that. The way we offer hospitality in Christian community can take very, a lot of different forms. It's the way we are together in Sunday school classes, the way we serve together on mission, the way we uh, learn together, the way we sing together. But one of the most basic ways that we practice hospitality as Christians is to serve the body and blood of Christ at the communion table. 
I have a story that I love to read from an author called, named Sarah Miles. Sarah Miles was raised in a home that was secular. Her parents deliberately uh, raised their children as atheists. They had a strong um, social justice motivation. They were loving people. They had been hurt by the church and they had rejected the church. And so they did not want their children to be hurt by the church and they raised them outside of it. And Sarah Miles, when she was an adult, was a journalist and she went into an Episcopal church pretty much out of curiosity. And she describes in her book, Take This Bread, walking into this church and all of the things that were happening were a complete mystery to her. She had never experienced anything like it. And she said, she's sitting there and thinking, this is pretty ridiculous. And then the communion table was opened. And then we gathered around that table and there was more singing and standing and someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread in my hands saying, the body of Christ, and handing me the goblet of sweet wine saying, the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened to me. It is not our job to try to convince intellectually why someone should believe in Christ. Rather, it is to set the table and to offer hospitality and invite people in and offer the opportunity for people to encounter the risen Christ and to pray and to tell our stories and to hope that something outrageous and terrifying will happen that Jesus will happen to us all. Let's pray.